Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Sam Cayucci, who's the founder and CEO of OneHuddle, a competitive game platform for onboarding and upskilling employees. And through their platform, they're helping companies around the globe to make training more fun, effective, and accessible for the entire workforce. In this episode, Sam talks about the customer discovery phase and how OneHuddle decided to start with professional sports teams, how they went about building the tech side of the platform initially, because Sam is not a technical founder, what the initial version of OneHuddle looked like and how that's evolved over time. Sam's experience going through the 500 Startups Accelerator, raising capital for this company. They've raised almost $8 million to date. The sales strategy for OneHuddle, drawing on Sam's experience leading sales teams across a number of organizations, and even the hiring pipeline that they've created with local universities, challenges they faced, and much, much more in this episode. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over an Apple podcast. This episode is brought to you by Hawk Media, a full-service outsourced CMO based in Santa Monica, California, providing guidance, planning, and execution to grow brands of all sizes, industries, and business models. Hawk Media is recognized by Inc. as one of the fastest-growing marketing consultancies, and their collaborative process, a la carte offering, and month-to-month fee structure gave clients the flexibility they need to boost digital revenues and marketing ROI. Hawk Media, the company, has serviced over 1,500 brands of all sizes, ranging from startups like Tomorrow Melon, SIO Beauty, and Bottle Keeper, to household names like Red Bull, Verizon Wireless, and Alibaba. And also, I had the founder and CEO of Hawk Media, Eric Huberman, on the podcast in episode number 23, if you want to take a listen. And to get a free consultation, head on over to hawkmedia.com, and be sure to mention Just Go Grind. Without further ado... Here is Sam Cayucci, the founder and CEO of OneHuddle. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Justin. Yeah, and with, with OneHuddle, there's there's really so much to discuss about the journey you took to build this. And uh, I always like providing some context at the beginning. And so what is OneHuddle for people who aren't familiar? Sure. You know, I think companies today are really struggling to keep employees not just trained up and ready, but also especially given COVID, it's a real challenge to keep people excited and connected to their jobs. Yeah. So One Huddle, we built the first game platform that companies can use to either onboard an employee quickly. So you get hired. How do we get you ready to work on day one? Uh, all the way to how do we continue to reskill and upskill a worker through their career? Best part, it's all in a game. It's not a manual. It's not one of those video modules. Everybody clicks through and nobody watches. Uh, it's competitive. So uh, at the end of the day, you should get better quicker using one huddle. That's awesome. And it's such a useful thing. I've watched a few of the videos about it and it seems like, yeah, anything with games and obviously it's more engaging. Uh, it's better in that capacity. There's a lot of questions I have around it, but how did this get started in the first place, Sam? You know, across my, my whole career, it was always a challenge to get a new employee trained up. And I always spent my career started in sales. I managed sales teams. A lot of our best sellers coming right out of right out of college, and I, it was just getting harder and harder to get a, a rep ready to go. And uh, at the same time, a lot of what, as I looked around the industry, a lot of what companies do to train and develop workers are very event based. It's like you know, you get hired and you sit through a training. You get hired and you go through an orientation. You get hired and they throw a manual at you. And I just thought there was got to be a better way to get an employee uh, ready to work. And it's also wild that the way most employees look at training is it's something you got to get through. It's not <laughs> something that you are looking forward to. Yeah. And uh, that is really what got me jump started. And you know, we're a tech company, Justin. So it, I, I have zero expertise <laughs> in anything <laughs> technology when I when I started the company, but I kind of knew that there was a problem that had to be solved. And as I started to really explore, I came across this concept of you know, gamification, which wasn't that startling because I'd been playing games my whole life growing up, playing Madden or NCAA and was very yeah. you know, aware of games. But I said, wow, that'd be an awesome idea. Imagine if we can make training as fun and competitive as the experience when you're playing a video game or any other type of game. And that's really where the idea got off the ground. 
Yeah, and it's such a, a good concept to to think about. I'm curious though, when you had this idea, then, I mean, what were some of the things you were doing to like that, that customer discovery uh, phase? Like, what were you doing to kind of validate this or get this off the ground initially? Sure. So I started I started where I was already strong, and I had come from the sports industry. I knew a lot of people around the peripheries of sports, mostly in the fitness and athlete development category. But I said, if I'm going to do this thing. Let's start with a very small pool and let's see if, there, if it even makes sense. So there's 120 professional sports teams at the time. You, know, you figure across your four main leagues, um, yeah. excluding MLS. And I said, let's go. I'm going to go after major, major pro sports teams with a campaign to see if they would use a product like this. And uh, even with sports, there's a lot of I, I focus just on the sales teams because I said, who spends money on training? Companies probably spend more on their salespeople first than they would on anybody else. So I targeted sports sales teams and uh, built all of our marketing, all of our targeting around that category. And you know, within our first 60 days, we won our first sale, which was Monumental Sports. They're the Wizards and the Caps in D.C. And we were off to the races. We had signed a dozen sports teams in the first five months, and we had kind of validated the concept and began to grow. So with that initial one, you said within within 60 days, you had the first one. So what did you have set up at the beginning in terms of what this looked like to be able to showcase and kind of prove this idea out? Because there's so many ways you can go about this. I'm just curious initially what this even looked like or what the concept was at that time. Yeah. So very, let's build the ship while we're at sea. <laughs> and this isn't an earth shattering concept, but I'm always surprised when I look at a company that tries to build everything out and make it perfect before they start validating. Uh, we uh, built the tech to a, an MVP, minimum viable product status, got our, um, uh, you know, I had no other people on the team except for a small group doing tech and an internship team doing research for me. And I was the salesperson doing outreach and marketing. And that was kind of where we started. But I think the key you know, keeping it open to all the folks out there that are entrepreneurs and startups that are listening. It was really, what is the next step I need to take uh, in order to validate the concept? Let's not overbuild anything that's not validated. Uh, and know that if a company looks at our stuff and says, hey, we wish it did this, we could charge them for that <laughs> and then do that <laughs> and, and build it. And that's, that's, that's really the next phase we got into is we've grown the product step by step by step over the last five years never over-engineering, but always waiting for a customer to say to us, hey, we really like that, but I wish it did this too. And if it makes sense, we do it. Yeah. And the customers get more engaged when stuff like that happens. So understanding you have the obviously the sales expertise from your background, the tech side, how did you end up approaching that? Did you go an outsource team? Did you end up bringing tech in-house? Like, how'd you, how'd you go about that initially? Yeah, so... Unfortunately, I didn't. I didn't graduate from Stanford. I don't know if that's unfortunate or not. No, no, no knocks on, no knocks on the Cardinal, but Certainly I helpful, didn't have. Yeah. A, I, I didn't have any. I didn't have a network of folks around me that. I didn't have anybody sitting next to me that I that I uh, that, that was a going to be a tech founder with me. So I hired an an offshore dev team, specifically, and this is important for those out there that, and this might go the other way. You might be technical and you might be looking for your first biz dev hire. I looked for folks in the category that complemented me, you know, and I also looked for a dev team that only worked on games it was a big thing to me. I didn't want to go out because we're in the HR workforce uh, category. That's kind of where we yeah. sell into. I didn't want to hire anybody that had done gamification for a learning management system. For example, I wanted to go out and find a dev shop that all they did was consumer focused games because they could bring a fresh lens to the product and the engineering. Uh, as we got this thing off the ground. So that that's where we started. And then over time, we slowly brought the dev team uh, more and more in-house. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I'm just curious, where where did you end up going for them? Because there's so many it, options there. Sure. Uh, we we've uh, we started in India and we uh, we expanded to, and that was, that was uh, again, not just, I think that the key to even hiring offshore dev isn't just hiring somebody and not building a relationship with them from day one. You know, I treated every partner, every vendor, our dev shop included, like an extension of our team, which yeah. meant that I was getting on a plane and I was going there 
and I was going to figure it out uh, together and build a relationship. You know, so the first uh, our first dev shop hire that we built the prototype of the platform with uh, was in Pune. So you know, I after back and forth and a lot of conversations and some initial work, um, they 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 let our, they they worked together with us to get it off the ground. And like I said, it was a, a relationship that only worked because I was willing to treat them as an extension of our internal team. Yeah, and I think it's an important point you make there because there is, there, it, can, it can seem disconnected if not, and then that we can run into a lot of different challenges along the way if you don't have a good relationship, especially in the communicating with the team and exactly what you need built and having that rapport built up by going there. I imagine was really helpful for you. And and in the sixty days, so you you got your first client. What was that in terms of? the pricing the business model behind this initially, and I'm sure it could have evolved since, but I'm curious initially, what was the kind of the business model? How are you going to charge clients uh, for using this? Sure. So we had no investors, no VC money. It was all my money that I had saved sort of going all in. So the initial business model was collect as much cash up front as we can. <laughs> Love so, it, Sam. <laughs> so we had, you know, we had a large integration fee. We're a SaaS company, so we had a large integration fee, something like eight to ten k, and it was large at the time for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, eight to ten k, and then uh, an ongoing fee of two hundred and fifty dollars a month. <laughs> so if, you, <laughs> if you if you look back at that model, you say that's not really sustainable, but that was how uh, focused we were on that moment. The goal is to see if people will, will pull the trigger on it. And what we were learning is people were shifting their entire trade. Like the 10K up front was companies shifting a pretty sizable part of their budget for training in that industry over to us. Um, and after about a year or two, once we got our, our legs under us, we obviously started to shift towards a um, you know, a, a different model that had obviously a higher ACV and yeah. focused on growing ARR. But that was, that was day, day one was all about don't run out it. of money. I love hearing about the initial stories because it, it can be so different for companies. And it's funny how some, some are the exact same model pretty much, even like five, six years later, it's just, they've you know tweaked it and some are completely different. And it is, does go to show like there's many ways to go about this. And, and with that then, so that was your kind of initial pricing. And then, but the product at the time, I know you had the dev shop in India helping create this, like take me through the product in terms of the game itself. Like, you know, you wanted to have this gamification concept with all different uh, use cases you have today, but at that time too, and I'll get to more recent soon, but at that time, like what was the actual product these companies you know, had in terms of what they were using with, the, with their teams? We were a native app for iPad only, and we were a, a role play game. So our first version of One Huddle was a classroom, think Cards Against Humanity meets Jeopardy for role play <laughs> training. And that was what we first rolled out because we, our first perspective was that what really sucks about job training is role playing. If you're a salesperson, nobody likes it. Everybody tries to do it. You know, everybody wants to be the Wolf of Wall Street with the sell me the pen crap, but nobody <laughs> likes to do it. No manager knows how to do it well. So we said, we're going to make this into a game, make it cool. So the first version was, you know, native to iPad. Uh, and it was a classroom role play game. And from that, then, what kind of feedback were you getting on this kind of initial thing? Is this is that you you know you want to test it out, you want to prove this concept out early on. What was the feedback you were getting from these kind of initial customers that were onboarding with you and using you and playing with this game? What were you getting from them at that time? So we got positive feedback on the experience. The the this was our multiplayer game, is what we deemed it, and we got a lot of great feedback around how the product works. The problem was. We were we built a game that you had to everybody you had to have everybody in the room at the same time to do it. So it only goes without it only makes sense to say that they were only gonna be able to use it so much. Yeah. And the feedback we got was really supportive of the strategy because the feedback we got was, Hey Sam, we really like the platform, but is there any way that we can get our employees to do this on their own? And imagine if we would have come out on day one trying to engineer a product that is single, that you could only play individual, like in a single player mode, that would have, um, that was something that would have been a bigger guess for us. But here yeah. we are with customers who are already paying us. And they said, you know what, we would pay you more if we could do this. And after we put everybody in the, in the, in the room for the game, they can go out and play it on their own. What about if we do that? And we said, that's a great idea. Would, would, uh, is it okay for it just to be like web-based? And they said, sure, nobody's going to use their phone. I go, okay. 
So we built it a web. We built a, a web app. So the next step was a web app where employees could play essentially all these different trivia format games on their on their own, but from a browser. And you know, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but you know, right after that, we had companies say, "Hey, it'd be really cool if they could do this on mobile." We said, "Ha, ah, it's a great idea. What if we do that? You'll pay us more." Sure. <laughs> Next thing you know, we built built the game. We built the platform. So we our when I say our customers guided our roadmap, but we controlled it. That was really that's really been the story of One Huddle at this point. Yeah. So you get that feedback from them, get it in their hands, get something in their hands, and get and get paid more importantly as well. So then you can make those adjustments uh, along the way, which which is pretty fascinating to see how you've kind of ad- adapted from what you first had, then you know going that route to the mobile app as well. And along the way with this, with the questions you mentioned this game, is it, how do you tailor it to each company? How, how have you ad- adapted that? Great question. The, the other big problem we saw once we went to a single player platform, even if it was just web-based, one of the things we learned was that there's only a few people in the workforce inside of a company that are even allowed to build job training. And the ones that do, it takes them forever. I mean, if anybody has ever built a deck or built a training manual or built an onboarding experience, or you know, remember those boring, you know, e-learning videos you watched on Blackboard when you were in college, <laughs> like that takes hours, days, yeah. weeks to create. So at that moment, we said, you know what, we're going to create an authoring engine, and that is going to be a huge differentiator for our product because it was at that point that we said, we're going to build the fastest way, not just to skill up, but the fastest way to create. And this is where we really saw some, some pretty big growth by wrapping our head around, let's build our own content management engine with our own custom authoring tool so that any manager, no matter how junior, can build a game even just from their mobile phone. So imagine you're a chef and you have a menu item coming out tonight. Chef could open their phone, take a few pictures of the item, build a few questions off it, swipe right, and all of their staff could get pinged with a game that they have to play before service. That speed was where we were going when we started to think about how can people offer Yeah, actually, when when I started researching One Huddle and was doing just looking at different things, that was one of the first things I thought of. I'm like, wait a minute. If all these different companies are on this, how do they actually create the content, the training, you know, that was something I was curious about. And so is it a matter of them just literally taking pictures of stuff they've already had and then using that to create questions? Like how do they, how do they go about this? Especially if they're, I guess I'm assuming most companies already have some training. So you're utilizing that to create the content then? Yeah. So think of it like Wix for job training. You know, you have templates. So anybody that's ever used any landing page platform, one auto has hundreds of games in our library uh, across a dozen different topics from, you know, how to use Zoom to uh, games on top business books to games on uh, how to close a sale. And those games are extreme. They're almost like a a Lego set because companies can take the game as is, or they can take it and delete the questions they don't want, keep the ones they do, build on top of it. And this is just not the way traditional e-learning is architected. You know, a, a traditional e-learning module is here's the deck, here's the module, here's the quiz. You can't change anything. Yeah. And changing it is, is very costly. So we built this thing to operate more of like, you know, a, a Lego set where companies can pull and bring stuff together. And speed of authoring is really important because if, um, if we get more people creating games faster, then we know that gameplay goes up. That was one of the things we saw in the very early days is when gameplay dropped, it was because managers weren't building games. We said, how do we get managers to build more games? Well, you need more people building them. Why why does Starbucks have five people building learning content in Seattle when they have hundreds (laughs) of stores with general managers who, you know, at the store level are going to say things like they don't know my business. You know, I'm sitting here in, you know, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. What do they know in Seattle about, you know, selling coffee, you know, where in my store, they don't. So we, yeah. we tapped into this reality that at the local level, people, you know, managers will build their own stuff and they'll do it for free and they'll do it all the time. You just got to make it easy and incent them to do it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the things with this company then, with One Huddle, you mentioned bootstrapping initially and uh, using your savings, get the dev team and kind of validate this idea. And obviously you got your first number of customers in the first five months. Eventually you go to 500 startups. How did you decide that you wanted to go through an accelerator? Well, we needed to raise money. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I, I started to realize that we were onto something and time is what matters and we wanted to move fast and yeah. raising venture is not for everybody it's not for every business but for us i knew that we we needed it if we were going to fulfill our mission and, and give this thing a real shot so yeah. i started to uh, talk to folks about raising money and like any net any good networking it, it takes you down a rabbit hole and that rabbit hole just happened to end up in san francisco talking to someone at 500 startups and we got offered a spot in their accelerator, which was back in, you know, end of 15, early 2016. And it was an awesome opportunity for us. You know, the check was, you know, they, like any accelerator, they wrote you a hundred thousand dollar check, yep. which at that time was like, you know, massive runway. So <laughs> <laughs> that's forever. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah. We're, we're rich. And yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it was an opportunity to, get into a new network of people. And if I look back, I really learned a heck of a lot about being a tech CEO in my time in the Bay Area, uh, not through 500 startups, just their programming, but through the, the spillover conversations and the networking that happens from picking up. And I lived in New Jersey. I had been married. I just got married five months before that. Nothing like Imagine that conversation five months after getting <laughs> married. Uh, and, but it was, it, it felt like I was at sleepaway camp. It felt like you were in a bubble and it was exactly what I needed at that stage. And it was a great experience. Yeah. And there's so many entrepreneurs I've talked to who have gone through either Y Combinator, Techstars, 500 Startups, et cetera. There's always different, different things. I mean, for you, so the network seems like it was one of the most important things. Like what else about the program did you, did you enjoy or, or like what, you know, big takeaways for others who might be considering, you know, going the accelerator route for their company? Yeah, I would say that the network was number one. I would say that number two was the practice I got to prepare for demo day taught me a ton about how to fundraise and fundraising is a selling process, but it is not the same as selling your product. Uh, if you try to fundraise, like you're selling your product, it, uh, it's, I don't think you put yourself in the best position to be successful. So the second thing was the amount of pitching you do in such a very tight window, even if you're just pitching other people in your batch or fat or startups coming in or investors coming in the velocity with which you had to really, you know, at 500, our demo day pitch was two minutes on stage. You know, I've seen, there's all types of accelerators out there today that do, you know, 10, 15, eight, seven. I mean, you have to be really good to get your thing down to two minutes. Yeah. And that, <laughs> that, that, that was a real powerful learning experience for me. Uh, last thing I'll say about the accelerator was uh, I love the, the community effect was really, was really great for us. And we're an outgoing team and I'm, you know, uh, I'm the kind of founder that I'd, I'd rather, you know, work in a packed coffee shop than, you know, sit at home by myself. And Same. I think just being in, being inside of a, being inside of that, that environment where, you know, you're sitting next to somebody who's coming up with a business model or an idea that's so counter to what you're doing, but can be so complimentary if you just have a conversation. That was, you know, I have relationships and friendships to this day that I forged going through that experience that was uh, really special. Yeah. And I, just on that coffee shop note, I do miss it so much, Sam, <laughs> the coffee shops and during COVID, I'm like a big, like always at a coffee shop somewhere working. So the last six months has been definitely strange. Let's just say with not having my typical go-tos. It's an outside coffee shop now, you know? You yeah, ex <laughs> exactly. And going through 500 startups, I mean, uh, great experience. I, I know that uh, a lot of people I've talked to have gone through these different accelerators. I mean, obviously a big part of that is capital. How soon after that did you raise uh, raise capital? I know you've raised almost it looks like eight million dollars or so uh, overall, but after that, how soon after did you raise uh, around? So we raised within four months of of completing the accelerator. We had we had we had a, we had some checks come in on demo day at five hundred, all small kind of angel stuff, and yeah. then uh, we started to put together our seed round, and you know, we, we closed out within four months. 
a big reason for that was how much excitement and energy and urgency we created coming out of a demo day, which I I don't know if it's unfortunate or not, but it almost feels like demo days are losing their, their, you know, they're not as much of an event as they use as maybe they, they used to be, but uh, we definitely did a great job using it as a, as a forcing function. And uh, it was, it was a, a big part of us being able to get the, get the seed round closed. Yeah, and that's that's what a lot of people use it for. So getting that that initial capital or institutional capital, I should say, after the hundred thousand, which does not last forever, apparently, <laughs> especially with tech startups, it doesn't. I actually just talked to someone recently who I think it was a company, a founder of Good Milk, and they raised like five hundred thousand, and she's like, "Wow, it's amazing how fast we went through that <laughs> that first half a million dollars, and you, you have to raise again." Then, of course, especially in a manufacturing type of thing. But uh, with that, so going through that, raising the initial capital, then uh, I know you. you mentioned the dev shop team, the, the team overseas. At what point did you bring in kind of the, the tech side in-house to, to grow this further? I'm just curious about that. When we approached our, our next round, um, you know, we, we sort of raised, you know, a smaller seed and then a larger seed round. Um, and when we approached the larger seed round, we realized it's time for us to bring some people in-house to be, um, you know, sit on the cap table and be a part of leadership uh, to really put ourselves in a position to, um, you know, not just raise capital, but be able to raise it and put it to work best. Uh, And and as the company started to get bigger, this is to all the founders out there. You know, I'm head of of technology. I'm chief sales officer. I'm chief customer success officer. I'm the chief marketing officer. I'm the chief financial officer, you know, and... (laughs) You start to realize that you got to start picking stuff that you can you can find a lieutenant to lead, and yeah. we had found that person, and most importantly, that was the right time. I felt like the you know I, I had done everything I needed to do to the product to that point to get it off the ground. It's time to get some other people in here around the product that think about it twenty four seven, and that was the big thing for me. You know, as you start to hire people onto the team, starting to think about. Uh, when I start feeling like a part of the business, I can't think about 24/7 anymore. That's that's a that's a good thing and a bad thing. It's 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 a bad thing only as far as if I don't quickly you know get off my ass and get somebody into that position to do that. Were you a solo founder? I, I don't yep. know, actually not. You were okay. What were the challenges along with that? Because I know there's a lot of uh, even accelerators that they prefer having co-founders was there what was the struggle with that was it was it fine like i'm just curious on how that went as a solo founder yeah i mean you talk to yourself a lot but uh <laughs> <laughs> you know for me it, it depends on your personality type it depends on your business you know it de- but for me i know the i knew the category i was coming into i mean i knew the training space i knew the the learning development space i knew again enough to do damage so uh it worked for me, but at the same time, you know, I, I would say that we have a we have a really strong core leadership at One Huddle. That these were folks who came on board with us in the early days, and even though they might not be a co-founder, they uh, they played a major part in the growth of the company, and I treat them as such. And yeah. I think that's almost better than having an, another co-founder. I mean, we have a, a group on our team, Roger, who's been on the sales side for us from you know he's he he. Uh, he literally quit his job and got on a plane to San Francisco with me, four or five hundred. Um, Rakesh, who leads technology for us, uh, Jared, who um, leads customer success for us. These are all guys who um, have always treated the business like it was their own. And I think that again, if you're going to be a solo founder, you better, you know, you better rock at getting people on the ship. We talk about it <laughs> all the time at One Huddle. It's like not, we don't care. There's no, no, you know, the the. I don't, we don't talk about buses at one huddle. We talk about, you know, we're get the right people on the ship right now. A lot of ships out there are going through a pretty heavy storm. Yeah. And, you know, you got to think about things like in that moment, who are the people that are the ones that are going to be above deck doing the things you need them to do. And the ones who are down below, you know, making, making dinner in the middle of the storm and the, the core group at the beginning, you, it's got to be on, there can't be a, a shadow of a doubt that that's going to be the people that are going to, they're going to fight the fight with you. Um, and we've been lucky to get those people around us. And that's really supported me being a solo founder. 
Yeah, the team is so important. I mean, any any startup, especially the team, is so critical to having that growth, and that's what people ultimately invest in, and they they want to see that you have a sub team. And, and to this point, and looking at the website and everything about one huddle, three x year over year growth, thirty five team members. What do you think fueled that on the kind of customer acquisition sales side? Because I know you got your first ones, kind of just cold outreach. I mean, is it still that today? Like, take me through kind of your customer acquisition side. Yeah, it's we're ninety percent of our leads come from cold outreach still to this day, which is why you know we've we've never really been impacted by sort of ebbs and flows in, in the market. Our team has been you know we've been we have a bunch of hunters on our sales force. We've carried a pretty big SDR team that is equipped to know how to have conversations and reach out and um, do the things they need to do to get people excited or involved. We talk about not many people are waking up and saying, uh, I'm looking for a game platform for employee training. You know, that's not something <laughs> people search into, you know, right. nothing, nobody's putting that in Google. So that's been our challenge is that we can't just sit back um, in, in many ways. So we've, we've felt that early on the way that we're going to um, grow is by having a really aggressive sales team that is not going to be scared to go anywhere and talk to anybody and that's been a big part. So 90% of our leads come from cold outreach. Uh, you know, our average SDR generates 15 discovery calls a month. Uh, we close uh, on average uh, one out of every three product demos that get to demo. You know, it takes um, takes generally nine discovery calls to get us down to three demos, and yeah. then we'll convert one out of three. Uh, and you know, with a three to four person SDR team, you can do the math. We, you know, we 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 work really, um, we worked really aggressively in 2018, 2019 uh, on the SDR front. One shift that happened in late 2019 into 2020 was we started to really focus on expansion, and we had landed a lot of deals. So the land and expand selling model is something that we uh, were prepared, you know, had in mind when we, you know, expanded and matured our pricing and looked at our sales team. No, we're okay landing a small deal because we're going to expand it into a big one. And yeah. um, that's that's really where customer our entire customer success team plays a part in the sales process and the upgrading process. Um, and that, that's sort of that's that's sort of how we I would say our customer acquisition acquisition strategy is, you know, to go anywhere and talk to anybody. Uh, but we're going to take responsibility for our own lead gen. Yeah. Absolutely. And with your experience, I mean, in sales in general and having run some different variety of teams at this point, I mean, what are, what are some of the essentials of, of setting up a sales team, setting, setting the, all those things up? Because I, I, I think a lot of startup founders would be maybe overwhelmed if they haven't done this before and really needing to have this in place. And you obviously have the experience. If there's anything on that or pointers or best practices or at all, I'd be curious to hear what your opinion is, Sam. Yeah. You know, you need, um, we did a few things when we started. We first, we uh, we went, we went, we reached out to our network and had conversations with absolutely everybody we could that had a B two B SaaS platform. That uh, well, we were out in the Bay Area. You know, we went to Saster with Jason Lemkin, and we uh, from there networked our ass off to try to get 10, 15 minutes on the calendar with anybody that's built a big SaaS company, and. Yeah our biggest conversation was, what do you use? And I still wanted to know, like, what's your tech stack? What do you use? <laughs> like, cut, let's get to the, get to the, get there as quick as possible. And um, what we learned from that is how do we turn one salesperson into three or four? Like, how do we use technology to scale one SDR? And, you know, so my first piece of advice would be to go out and copy somebody. Like, you're going to have to, this whole thing is a gamble anyway. Right. So, <laughs> right. Right. Game. Like uh, I had, I had, a, I had a mentor one time tell me, you know, when I was thinking about making a hire, he goes, Sam, you jumped off the, sh you jumped off the cliff, like jump. Don't just like, don't act like a wimp and you scrape yourself, you know, just jump off the sucker. So yeah. same thing. We said, we're going to go out we're going to look at what people do. We're going to, we're going to bring it into the fold. That was number one. The second thing we did was we built a, a, a people pipeline. So I'm in Northern New Jersey. Uh, I built relationships with half a dozen uh, college programs in the area that have business students that are looking to get into a career uh, and need sales experience. So what did we do? We said, we're going we're gonna to build out our own inside sales team with an internship force. And 
the reason we did that was twofold. One, we knew we were going to screw up a lot in this process. And as long as we got the right people on board, uh, we're going to get them. You know, if, if a candidate is an intern looking for experience, we're definitely going to give them experience. So we built a local pipeline uh, with universities. I, I bring that up as important because if you look at our, if you go to the team page on One Huddle's website, uh, I count, on last count, 70% of our, our employees have come from direct referrals from those colleges. So I'm not talking about graduates uh, or just like students. I'm talking about professors reaching out to me and saying, I got somebody who's three to four years into a career and I think you'd be perfect for them. So we got it. We built a community around our business that people knew us. We spoke in class. We zoomed in. We, we would do those things. So, you know, I'd get the software taken care of by talking to people. I would go out and talk to, uh, you know, second, I would go out and build a, build a pipeline of, 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 again, I'm an old, I'm, I have an old football coach mindset in a lot of ways. So it's like, I kind of look at that as our territory. Those are our schools. We want to get it. We want to have a strong pipeline <laughs> into our schools. Yeah. That's our recruiting and that's where we're going to get kids from. And then, you know, the third part, probably one of the things that, that really had made the biggest impact on us is we, we trained like hell. Uh, we role played the heck out of everything. We challenged ourselves and our early sales hires every day to be the best at pitching our product. And whether we were out ordering at 11 o'clock at night and, you know, crushed from a day's work and the waitress comes over, we're pitching our product. And we're just <laughs> finding ways to talk about the business and consume it all the time. And that, uh, that was really a, a force for us in accelerating, um, you know, our, our, our ability to be confident in what we were selling. And with that then, so obviously you built that pipeline, you, you got the team in place, which, I mean, that seems like it, it's obviously worked out really well for you. You're still growing and have a pretty insane growth actually. Uh, take me through on the product side. How has this evolved? Cause I mean, there's just so many, I see so many use cases on your website and I, you mentioned it's not just for, for one thing. It's kind of all over in terms of the different solutions. Take me through those and how you've gone about deciding what you really want to offer. Yeah, so this was a problem for us in fundraising because we would get asked the question, you know, one huddle, where where do you, who do you work with? And we would say, we'll work with everybody. People would say, you can't do that. And I would say, yeah, we're a horizontal software solution. We're, we're training. We can, we're, we can teach somebody to, you know, to close a sale. We could teach somebody to make a, you know, a frappuccino. We could teach somebody how to, uh, you know, how to, how to deal with a difficult customer. We could do all of it. And that was really a challenge early on uh, to get people to understand. But this is what I'll say about our, our, our growth. The fact that we focused on sports and sales first was awesome for us because it, the natural evolution came where the head of customer service came over and said, hey, this product is being used by the sales team at Madison Square Garden. Can it be used for customer service? And then, you know, we had the, the uh, food and beverage people come over at the stadium and say, hey, this is being used by customer service. Can we use this to train our bartenders? And there was almost like a natural evolution that occurred where customers kept coming to us asking us, can we do that? And the product evolved. It's, it's like so counter to the way so many <laughs> startups try to act like they do everything. And like, I get hit with so many CRMs that hit, that hit us up every day that say, we do everything, we do this, we do that. And, you know, you got you to gotta really chip away early on to be able to be in a position. You know, now, now we're in a dozen verticals and our product is used by everybody from the Air Force to the barista. And we can walk, we can stand in front of a room and say that our product is used across all of these different use cases. But the way it grew was just by being patient, knowing what you're good at, and just having conversations and exploring and it's so amazing the way within the companies we worked with, it almost naturally spread to other groups. Um, but if we would have came in on day one and we would have, we would have talked to a company and we would have said to them, they said, what's one huddle? And we would have said, Hey, we're, we're everything for everything. They wouldn't have believed us, you know? <laughs> yeah. It would have been, it would have been challenging for sure. And with that, I mean, to that point, we talked obviously a little about the customer acquisition side, but knowing that you at this point offer a, I mean, such a variety how do you hone in on, on, on your customers and on your potential customers or ideal customers? Because obviously you're doing outreach and you have the SDRs and everything. Like how are you looking at then who should we be targeting even from a customer standpoint or like who you are, your, your, your best customers? How do you look at that? Yeah. 
Crossing the Chasm is a great book. If you haven't read it, I'd recommend folks out there to pick it up. Um, it, it was a book that impacted me really early on. And I didn't really understand it. You, every, you, you know, Justin, you ever had one of those books, you bought it, you read it, you hated it. And then like five years later, you went back and read it. You're like, wow, this is like the best book I've ever read. Yeah. Like, oh, it makes sense now. <laughs> <laughs> so that was like crossing the chasm to me. And, you know, we started out with just an ideal customer profile that was, you know, pretty uh, confusing if I were to put it in front of a growth marketer and they were trying to make sense of it. Yeah. Uh, but today, you know, we understand kind of like two dimensions. First, we know that our ideal customer, we know what they look like based off revenue, based off of the type of roles inside of the company we should start with, based off the the business model. Like we do really well with customers that ha with, that have high customer facing workforces, companies that have to get employees that talk to other customers to say the right thing. We do really well in those environments early on. We also do really well with scenarios of high product knowledge. So we started to look, that was sort of our first dimension. We look at, do they check some of these boxes on our profile? The second dimension though, is what's brought up in, in this book, which is about understanding the real psychology of your customer. Startups do a really good job selling to uh, you know, a few different types of buyers. One type of buyer we did really well with early on would be called the sort of the early adopter. They're the yeah. ones who uh, they like to move quick. They like to be. They buy that. You know, they buy the the latest iPhone. You know, every time it comes out. But the thing about this group that we we learn the hard way is this group doesn't like to see case studies. This group wants to be the first mover, and if somebody else is already doing it, it actually takes away from their interest level. <laughs> and that that was a really important learning because you're so wired to build case studies and ROIs and this and that. And here we were with the customer who was, we were growing with. We were also like pissing them off at times because we were coming up and say, hey, yo, you're, you know, you're Golden State Warriors. Look what we do with Madison Square Garden. And the Golden State Warriors would say, we don't care about Madison Square Garden. And, you know, we want to yeah. do something different. So that is really tough to understand. Uh, as we grew, this next group we really started to do well with was, um, what the book would deem the early majority, that's the group that they kind of want to be, they want to be seen as a first mover, but they don't want to take the risk. So that group needs to see the case study. That group needs to see ROI. And once we learn that those are the two groups we do really well at, we're able to really start asking better questions in our discovery process. So companies out there that, you know, you're making your first few sales or you're growing, and even us, we have a playbook of questions we ask in our discovery call. They are all on purpose. They all yeah. build on top of each other. And uh, we started to really frame those around the type of customers we know we do well at. Um, and we started to see a, a better conversions and richer conversations and pipelines speeding up when we really nail those the right way. Yeah. And, and today, I mean, Sam, you're five years into one huddle. And you're a solo founder, you bootstrapped originally, you've gone through Accelerator now, you know, raised millions in venture capital. What challenges, what's the, what are the biggest challenges you're thinking about today with the company? I'm thinking about, you know, it's always, to me, it always strikes me first as people. It, yeah. it, my job now, and it's never, it's always been this, but becomes more and more clear, is to continue to get the right people on the ship to continue to develop those people, uh, to know that some of them uh, may not be ready for the next voyage because they might have capped out or there might be a better, you know, some, someplace better for them. Uh, but the ones that are here, it's my responsibility to continue to develop them. So that's the one thing I think about um, first. The second thing I think about is the product of the business. But I mean, to me, that always comes second. You know, the product for us, we're, we're definitely living during interesting times with COVID. It's been a major boost for our business simply because we're a remote work tool. So we saw yeah. a major lift. Um, but the challenge is how do we make sure that we are uh, continuing to be aggressive in innovating and engineering, but also being sensitive to the fact that man, at any point in time, a second wave, who knows what could yeah. throw your business. So, you know, you're kind of, 
you're trying to figure out, do I have enough gas in the tank, you know, to get to the next, to the next, to, to the next stage, whether that's <laughs> series B or whatever that is for us. Um, yeah. So that's going to be, that's a real, that's, that's a real challenge every day that we think about is we want to be aggressive. We want to be on offense. Um, and we want to be, you know, to be high growth, you need to be, uh, but, just making sure that we're being uh, disciplined and responsible as we do that. Yeah. And one of the things uh, I was actually just talking to uh, Aman Abuzid from, uh, from incredible health this morning before, and she was talking about investing in yourself as a founder. That was so huge for her. I'm curious for you, uh, you know, it was coming from, you had a sales background and marketing background, you, but you were solo founder. And if I'm correct, a first time founder, how have you invested in your yourself, like to make sure you can handle all, all that you're doing as a founder? I'm just curious about that too. I'm a rat, a rabid learner, and there are bumps in the road during the startup journey. There are highs. There are, the highs are super high. The lows are super low. You know, I got a lot of friends who um, have been really challenged during COVID, especially that I feel for. Uh, I, you know, I look back at what's helped me to get through this and develop. Um, it's making sure that you have your calendar on your time. And uh, a few years ago, I formally got my calendar under control, which my calendar was never under my control when I started the company. It was always on somebody else's time. And I learned to make sure that, you know, um, I'm getting enough sleep at night. You know, everybody loves to be, I get three hours of sleep, four hours of sleep, blah, blah, blah. Great. Well, you know, we'll see how long that lasts for you because people get old. <laughs> Um, I made sure that, Hey, you know what? Seven, eight hours of sleep. I need to get that at night. I, so I do that. I make sure that, you know, I, I work out first thing in the morning when my brain is fresh and I get even, it could be 10 minutes, it could be 30 minutes, but I get that in. I make sure that, you know, I've read, I read close to 70 books this year. I don't year. I don't, I don't say that number to impress. I say that just because I have a goal every year for what I'm going to consume and I'm going to spend my time doing that. I don't take a call in the morning unless I read a hundred pages of a book. Um, so I have to get me taken care of first. That was that I've not always been that way. I've learned that I have to be in a good place with myself, with my family. I have a three and a half year old daughter. Now, uh, family's got to be under control and then I can help other people and develop others and focus on the business. Um, you know, so that's, uh, that, that's really where I've been. You know, I, I've, I've been lucky enough to play high school and college sports with some really amazing coaches who I continue to tap into to learn from. And that's why I say I'm a rabid learner. There's no, there is something you can learn every day from somebody yeah. that you engage with. And I, I try to, to live up to that every day. And, and with the, the book side of things, because you having being a big reader, obviously with the 70 books, I mean, what are some of your, your favorites? You mentioned it across in the chasm. Like, is there any, any others that stand out or you, you can name off a few, feel free. I, I always just love book suggestions. I'm curious about what people are reading. Sure. You know, I went through the stage early on in my career reading every business book and you put your hand off, right? You got the seven habits. You got every, I was, uh, I guess I show my age. I'm like Zig Ziglar and Brian Tracy and Dale Carnegie stuff. And um, I guess now it's like Grant Cardone and, and who else, you know, that's out there running around. But um, yeah. I, 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 I'm a big history buff. I believe history repeats itself. Um, I enjoy, uh, you know, I, my, my favorite book that I've ever, you know, ever read. I'm a, I was handed it when I was 15 was Sun Tzu's The Art of War. I probably have a dozen copies of it and I reread the book countless times a year. And, um, although that's probably a cliche answer for a top book, it's, um, it, it, it is something I, I, I relate to from a, uh, you know, a text can come in so many different interpretations. Uh, but I also, at the same time, Long Walk to Freedom from Nelson Mandela is a favorite. And um, uh, today, right now, which what I'm currently reading, I just read John Meacham's book uh, on John Lewis and am really focused in on, um, you know, some of the most important topics as we, uh, as we start to think about a election that's going to matter a hell of a lot for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually uh, listening. I, I, I like reading books in like you know the physical copy. I'm a huge fan of that, but also because I found that 
in especially during quarantine, uh, going for walks has been one of the, the best things. And I listen to an audiobook typically right now. I'm listening to uh, Malcolm X, which is only from Audible, and it's uh, it's read by Lawrence Fishburne. It's it's tremendous. And like, there's so many books like that that can be impactful. And I, I agree with the history repeats itself and kind of going through that. And it's kind of interesting to hear if you ever listen to podcasts. Uh, Hardcore History by Dan Carlin is incredible. If you're really interested in history, uh, there's so much to kind of learn from people in the past and he does a great job with that. So I have to give him a plug on that as well. And, and just going to wrap things up here, Sam, uh, is there anything else you'd want to tell other entrepreneurs just based on your, you know, your, your five-ish year journey with one huddle, anything else, any other takeaways or things you want to leave people with as before, as we wrap up here? You know, I would say that the number one thing that I've appreciated most about the journey has been uh, how it's forced me to formulate my own uh, my own standards as a leader. And sometimes you're so much in the business, you don't pause and think like, what do you stand for as a leader? Uh, what do you stand for um, in terms of your own personal mission statement? What do you stand for insofar as what are your own core values? Um, my, I had a coach who used to talk about non-negotiables. What are the things that under no circumstance, they're non-negotiable. You won't break them. Like I got buddies that would never, ever, ever eat at McDonald's and they're never going to do it. They're all, you know, <laughs> fitness buffs. Like what are your non-negotiables? Yeah. So I think the one thing I would leave everybody with is, you know, uh, as we all race full speed around the clock and have no breaks and don't sleep and are trying to change the world. Like what, what, what are the things that you live by? Uh, do you have them written down? Have you, um, are they in the notes app on your phone? Have you thought about them? Do you wake up every day and try to instill them in the other people around you? That is something that um, I have made front and center for me as a leader. And when I started to live that way, um, you know, I started to realize that there are people around me every day who um, can give so much more and want to give so much more, but they're thirsty for inspiration. They're thirsty for coaching. Um, and that's been a big focus. I have a, we have a, we have a quote on the wall here at one huddle. It says, do the hard shit. And <laughs> that's how we live. You know, yeah. it, if it's every day you wake up, you know, there's something that you want to do, but you shouldn't do it. Like, can you keep yourself from doing it? That, that is, you know, and then there's also things that, you know, um, you don't want to do, but you want to like, can you, um, you know, can you be disciplined? And that's what we that's what I've I've learned to focus on every day. And as a as a CEO, you and a leader, you have to do the hardship. Absolutely. Sam, where can people go to learn more about One Huddle and connect with you as well? Catch us at One Huddle, the number one huddle, like a football huddle dot co uh, to learn more uh, and check us out. And I'm, we're we're on everything, so shouldn't be too hard to find. If if we are too hard to find, please let me know once you find us, and I'll I'll let our marketing our SEO guru. Ninja know that, um, but you should find us at onehuddle.co. Awesome. I'll be sure to link up everything as well in the show notes, just go grind.com slash podcast. Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Thanks, Justin. Great being here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you. Justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.